0: So while everyone is getting situated, I'm gonna go ahead and give you a tip or a sense of what I'm gonna do during this time. So one thing that might be helpful, um, I am just gonna walk right through the text. So this week we're in chapter one, verses one to 14. I am just gonna go verse by verse straight through. So what might be helpful is to turn to page 81 where the text of Colossians is printed for you, or you might just want to open your Bible up, or you might want to have both open. Um, Whatever is is helpful for you, you may just want to be following along so that you can see where I'm at, what I'm saying, how it connects. I am going to start us off with prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us now. Would you help us to be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding according to the knowledge of your will? We want to know you better, and Lord, I pray that more than just knowing things about you, that you would help us to be obedient women. Would you help us to be the kind of women who read your word, who receive it, who love it because we love you and who obey everything that you say, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, how'd it go? Hopefully it went okay this week. Um, This was a a wonderful passage, um, a beautiful prayer, just a wonderful section to start us off. Uh, But before we do that, I want to go over some overview things that mostly you've already discovered in your homework, likely. And if you didn't, probably someone helped you discover it this morning. But let's start off with some things you know. You know that Paul wrote this book with Timothy around AD 62 from Rome while in prison to the believers in the city of Colossae. So it's written to a church which tells us that it's after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It's after the giving of God's spirit to the believers. And Colossians, like we talked about in our group, it's just the name of a people, the people that this letter is being sent to. So we just say Colossians because it's quick. But if we wanted to be accurate, we would say we're studying the letter to the Colossians or the epistle to the Colossians. Epistle is just a particular word related to biblical genres. Genre is a style of writing. Epistle is just a word that really means letter. But it's different than some other ancient letters, because it's written to churches, so they give it its own special name, epistle. That's all. Uh, There are many different genres in the scripture. That just means there's many different styles of writing. There's poetry. There's history. There's narrative. There's the major prophets and the minor prophets, which we also talked about a little bit. All these different styles of writing. And it's really helpful to know what style of writing am I in? Because otherwise, it'll be very difficult to make sense of what we're reading. So this style of writing is just a letter, you know? We write letters all the time. You're probably sending 10 emails today. So it helps us to know that when we pick it up to read it. And an important thing to know about these people in Colossians is that they had never met an actual apostle face-to-face. They had never seen or met the Lord Jesus. Everything that they heard was secondhand. And in that sense, we have everything in common with the Colossians. We have never met an apostle. We have never seen the Lord Jesus face-to-face. So it may as well have been written to the Church in Christ at Moundsview View in terms of our, our situation that way. Um, the fact that we're all gathered here around God's word, 2,000-plus some years after um, Jesus has ascended, uh, besides being very miraculous and astounding, uh, is the direct result of many Epiphrases. So we learned about this beloved man named Epiphras. And that's how the Colossians knew about Jesus, about the Apostle Paul even. And how do we know? Well, we know from the recorded testimony of this book, but even more immediately, we know because somebody told us. Somebody told us. And so we can give thanks to God for those people in our life. We're all told the good news by someone. Could be your parents or a friend or a neighbor or a stranger. But somebody cared enough about you to share the good news with you. And so we can thank God for that. So starting in verse 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. So first, Paul identifies himself. He says um, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, it's important that Paul identify himself this way. You know, why does he feel the need to do this? Well, Paul's journey to apostleship was not the norm. (laughs) It was very unusual. And that's important to his story. And so let's, I'm just going to acquaint us with how it is that Paul came to be an apostle because he was not one of the 12 disciples, if you recall. How is it that he's an apostle? He tells us the story. Well, we get the story multiple places in scripture, but he tells it himself in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 3. He says this, for I, that is Paul, I delivered to you Paul was an untimely apostle. He was an apostle very much by the intervention and will of God. In order to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his 12 disciples were certainly that. So how is it that Paul gets in this group? Well, he was an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul and said to Paul, because his name was Saul at that point. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul was a witness to the Lord Jesus. He was an untimely born apostle in his own words. It's important to know that though. So then Paul addresses them and he says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but I do think that in some ways this could be the most foundational thing that he says in this book. It kind of sets us up right at the get-go because he locates the Colossians, but he doesn't locate them first on earth. He He locates them in Christ, and everything that follows in this book flows from that location in Christ Being in Christ is an eternal location. It's a spiritual location. And in chapter 3, he expands on what this means. And this is what he says. He says, he tells the Colossians to set their minds on things above. Well, why? Why set our minds on things above? Well, partly because that's where they already are. That's where they are. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Then he says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So if we are in Christ, then we're hidden in him, even as he is currently right now seated at the right hand of God in heaven. So set your mind there, because that's where you are. That's a huge reality, and as you begin to grasp that reality, life starts to change quite a bit. (laughs) He's describing something called our union with Christ. That's the name that we give to that doctrine, that teaching that he's describing. Our union with Christ means we have been so united with him that his life is ours and our life is his and all the benefits that he has as God's son become ours. We share in his inheritance and all the sinfulness and brokenness and wrongs that we have, he takes on himself. We are fully united to him, to his death, to his resurrection, and even to his ascension. It's an incredible thing. So there are a million ways that our physical location, so being at Colossae or being in Moundsview or a million different physical locations can wrongly overshadow our spiritual location of being in Christ. I'm going to share a short little story about... uh, how our physical location may seem a little more prominent than our spiritual location. Uh, our youngest son has um, special needs, and he's had some seizures in his life, and they're uh, life-threatening. That He's only had three, and each one of them, life-threatening. So the very first one he had, he ended up in the PICU for a while, and very scary experience for all of us um, And it was a few months after that kind of terrifying experience, life and death experience, that we were home, normal night, and our next daughter, Evangeline, um, had croup at night. And anybody have a kid with croup ever? Croup is one of those things where they get that seal barky cough and it sounds like they can't breathe and it's scary. It seems really, really scary even though, you know, they're probably going to be just fine. But it feels quite frightening. And this was not our first go-around with croup. I mean, we have five kids. We've seen croup a lot of times. But coming off of the, I guess you could call it trauma, of of seeing our son in such a life-and-death situation, watching then our daughter experience this very normal bout of croup Sent me over the edge. I just went into a panic, and it's the middle of the night, and she's panicking because of the difficulty with the coughing and the breathing, and I'm panicking because I've already seen one child go through something that felt just too much, and now to see this one, it was too much, and I, I passed out. So I'm on the floor in her room, just <laughs> just having kind of this panic and telling Tom, call 911 you know, scared for her, and so he does, and and the paramedics come, and very sheepishly then, we have to send them away, because she, of course, is fine, and it was a unnecessary call, uh, but it was just one of those incredibly embarrassing, incredibly out-of-control moments in my life where, um, boy, I wish I could get that back. I couldn't even really tell anybody about it for a couple months. I was just so mortified about the whole thing, well, then, fast forward a ways more, and you know Titus is having another seizure in our bedroom, and it's, it, it's legitimately horrible, and it's legitimately not good, and we do need to call 911, and they do need to come, and we do need to go in the ambulance, but the same thing happens where I'm starting to pass out again because I get this physiological response of, I don't know, fear, all these different things that... I don't seem to be able to have control over in that moment, and so as it's coming on, and Tom, you stay with him. I'm going to try and get to the bathroom, get to the bathroom on the bathroom floor, and I'm laying there, and I'm, I'm remembering back to when it happened again. I'm kind of wishing that somehow I could prevent this from happening, but I clearly can't, and I'm just asking the Lord to help and to be with me, and remembering that This is not, what is happening here is real, yes, but there's a deeper real, and it's that we're in Christ. We're with him, so that even in that moment, my location on the bathroom floor face down isn't the most ultimate thing about me. It's that I am seated in the heavenly places with Christ. He has this. doesn't mean everything's going to turn out great. That's not what it means to be in Christ in terms of what's going to happen in our earthly circumstances. But it means whatever the circumstance, there is a much surer foundation under my feet than the bathroom floor. And so, whatever your circumstance, it doesn't just have to be a physical location like Moundsview. You might be located in a very hard marriage. You might be located in some very difficult thing right now. And what Paul is telling us, for those of us who are, is that there's something even more foundational about you. You are in Christ. You are secure. You are hidden there. Nothing can touch you there. And he will come back for us one day. And all things will be made right. So you can know that you are in the right place no matter where you are when you're in Christ. He goes on to say, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, this is, you know, it might feel like a little bit of a throwaway greeting. Like, okay, well, that's a greeting. But this is astounding. Paul has never met the Colossians, yet he is, in one sense, declaring to them grace and peace from the Father. And he's not talking about peace as a feeling of tranquility and stillness in our souls, as good as that is. He's talking about a different kind of peace. This is the peace that comes when war has ceased. You were at war with God, you were opposed to him, you hated him, and now, because of his son, you have peace with God, peace with God. So, verse 3 says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So he gives two reasons that he's thanking God for the Colossians, their faith in Christ, and the love they have for the saints. And these two reasons are based on something. They're grounded in something. They're based on the hope that has been laid up for them in heaven, which is a certain hope. We're not talking about wishful thinking, hoping. This is an eager expectation hope. So one question that came to me as I'm reading Paul's thankfulness to God over the Colossians is, was this, is my love for the saints, for the church, for the people of God, so evident that it's actually testifying to the people around me that I have a hope laid up for me in heaven? Does it testify to a heavenly reality of hope? Are we giving evidence to something eternal and unseen by our love for the people around us? And then in the middle of verse 5, he says this, Of this, that's referring to the hope, so of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the, the this is the hope laid up for them in heaven. And Paul is simply saying that they know about this heavenly hope. How do they know about it? Well, they heard about it when they heard the gospel. They heard about it in the word of truth. And the uh, the word of truth and the gospel are synonyms, and the hope laid up for them in heaven is encompassed in the word of truth. So, what is the gospel doing in these verses? Well, we see that it's bearing fruit and increasing, and the Colossians are actually the fruit of the gospel, their lives, the people in the church at Colossae, they are the fruit. They're the fruit of the gospel. Verse 7 says, just as you learned it, and it is the gospel. So just as you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So here we get to Epaphras. We learn that he is beloved a fellow servant a faithful minister of christ he's made known to paul and timothy the love of the colossians in the spirit so this is a great guy (laughs) this is the kind of guy we want in all our churches he's uh he's well loved he's faithful he's servant-hearted he spreads good information about people You know, he's spreading good things about the Colossians to Paul. He lets them know that the Colossians are a loving people and not just any kind of love. Love in the Spirit. And this is important because this is a spiritual love. You know, Galatians tells us that love is a fruit of the Spirit. And that kind of love is not a natural love. So there are natural loves. A mother's love for a child is a natural love. Believers and unbelievers alike have a love for their children. Even romantic love is a natural love. Believers and unbelievers alike have romantic love. But spiritual love is a supernatural love. It's a divine love. It's concerned with eternal realities, and it's a love that is set on someone, not because they deserve it, but because of the will of the one doing the loving That's how God loves us. He sets his love on us. Even though we don't deserve it, even though we didn't earn it, uh, that's the kind of love God has. And that's how the Colossians were loving each other. It's It's the agape love. That's the Greek word. It's a love in the spirit. It's a preferential love. So verses 9 to 12 get us to Paul's prayer. giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So let's just take that first, those first two words, and so. That little and so is just our transition for him to say, what I'm saying now comes from everything I've said before. And so, you could kind of Think, because of your faith, because of the gospel, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, because you believe the word of truth, because of all that, we have not ceased to pray for you. And that's an astounding reason for him to be praying. It's it's a grateful reason. It's a prayer of gratitude. Paul's heart is so bent toward longing for more and more people to know God through Christ that he hasn't ceased to pray for them. His his main request here can be seen in that first part. This is the main overarching request, and it's that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All the things that follow after that are certainly just as important, but they're sub-points under the main point. So, filled with the knowledge of his will. I don't think that's something maybe we intuitively know exactly what he means by, at least I don't intuitively know exactly what that means always, filled with the knowledge of his will. So what kind of will is Paul talking about here? Are we supposed to be filled with the knowledge of the future? Is somehow Paul's prayer that we would just know the mind of God to such an extent that we know everything he's going to do and that we can kind of discern like, well, I knew I was supposed to take exit 23 because the Lord revealed it to me this morning, and so that's where I drove today. Like, is he, is he kind of giving us a template for each day, the download of my schedule? Is that the kind of will he's talking about? I don't think so. There is God's secret will You could call it his secret will. It's his will of providence. It's what he does. It's what's going to happen in the future. He decides it, and it comes to pass. Every word of his proves true. He does everything he pleases. Paul already referenced that kind of will when he talks about himself being an apostle by the will of God. Why is Paul an apostle? Well, because God willed it so. He chose Paul, and it came to pass. That's his plan. We know that it was his plan because it happened. But then we also have his revealed will, which is sometimes called his moral will. And this is the will that is clearly revealed to us in the scriptures. It tells us how he wants us to live. So here's a sampling of verses from the scriptures to help us get our minds around what he means by this kind of will. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, he says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification just means holiness, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's his will for you. 1 Peter 2.15 says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What does, what's God's will for your life today? That you would do good and silence ignorant people. 1 <laughs> Peter 4.2, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. His will is that you would not be living, for sinful passions. That's his will. Don't live for sinful passions. So that's a small sampling, Uh, but it's safe to say that God's will for you, the overarching will of God for you today and for your life, is that you would be sanctified into greater and greater holiness, that you would grow in good works, that you would be pure, that you would grow in deeper trust in him and love for others, that you would abstain from sin. So that is what Paul is asking for, for the Colossians, that they would be filled with the knowledge of that will, meaning the knowledge of how they ought to live in holiness, in purity, in good works. He wants them to be able to discern good from evil. How does Paul want them filled with the knowledge of his will, of God's will? He wants them filled in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So not worldly wisdom, but spiritual wisdom given by God's spirit. So here's a definition I'll give you for spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is God's spirit working to illuminate and apply God's word, often with the help and spirit-directed counsel of God's people, to our own particular life and situation. I'm going to say it one more time. Spiritual wisdom is God's spirit working to illuminate and apply God's word, often with the help and spirit-directed counsel of God's people to our own particular life and situation. So some examples in the Old Testament of wisdom, think of Solomon. And the two women who come to Solomon, both saying, this baby belongs to me. And Solomon is supposed to figure out, who does this baby belong to? And what does he do? He says, cut the baby in half. (laughs) And the woman who's the real mother says, no, give it to her. That's wisdom. There was no statute in Israel's law that told Solomon what to do in that situation. There was no chapter and verse that he could go to that said, here's how to handle a dispute between two mothers about a baby but he used wisdom. He applied the principles, and he he made a wise choice. You know, another example is uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, giving him good advice about how to handle all the disputes and issues of all the people of Israel coming to him. Jethro says, it's not good for you to handle all this. You need some help. That's wisdom. Wisdom is where God's word and God's spirit and God's people come to bear on our actual lives. And when that happens, uh, the Colossians will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks. So of all the things on that list that Paul is praying for them, there was one that has given me pause in my life, and it's this phrase, fully pleasing to him. And so I just want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, The reason why it gave me so much pause is because I read it, and and I immediately think, well, that's not possible. I can't fully please God. I have sin. I'm a sinner. I do wrong things. And so my idea of pleasing God was, well, Christ pleases God for me, and I just keep on displeasing God. But thankfully, Christ pleases him while I don't. That's a deficient view of salvation. It's a very deficient view of salvation because Christ does even more than please God on our behalf, which he does do, don't get that wrong, and must, that is the ground of our salvation, that he has done for us what we could not do. I can't please God on my own, period. But with Christ, having been united to him and born again and given a new heart and given the fruit of the spirit, one of which is self-control, so that I can tell my hands, quit doing that, and I can tell my mouth, quit saying that. I now can imperfectly please God. Imperfectly please God. So I just want to encourage you with that. We won't be holy in the perfect way that Christ is holy But Christ is working in us, and he is growing us in holiness, and that pleases God. You please God when you grow in holiness. So what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, is bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this bearing fruit is not the fruit of the gospel, which was people, it's the fruit of good works. It's the fruit of doing good. Um, we retell in one sense the gospel story with our good works. We set ourselves to do good and that transforms the things around us. You know, if I, if, if I come home um, and I'm irritated and you know, snarling at people well, I can transform that room into a pretty ugly place. But if I come home and I'm filled with the Spirit, I can transform that place into a place that's much different than it would have been otherwise, even if the people around me are a little bit sour. We have the ability to transform things in our good works, just as the gospel has transformed us. But we don't do it alone. We do it because we're strengthened by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, And that power helps us to endure and be patient with joy and thanksgiving, even in the middle of COVID, even in an election year, even in 2020. So we end this section with this statement. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you notice, the verbs in this section are past tense verbs. He's done it. Where are we? If you're in Christ, you're in the kingdom of the beloved son. You are not in the domain of darkness. No matter how dark it feels, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter if violence and chaos breaks out because of the election, we are firmly situated in the kingdom of God's beloved son. Paul Praise spiritual prayers for spiritual people. And that's the main application that I want to leave you with as we end this, to challenge yourself to pray like Paul, which is not telling you don't pray for your small requests. I'm not saying quit praying uh, that your toe would stop hurting or quit praying that your child would sleep through the night or quit praying that your commute would be a little smoother. Those are, we bring all our requests to God, but I am challenging you to pray spiritual prayers for spiritual people. Not once did Paul ask for the Colossians' circumstances to change, even though they had some difficult ones. He never did ask for that, did he? Why didn't he pray that, you know, whomever those false teachers were in chapter two would go away? No, he's praying for their strength to discern what is false, not for their circumstances to change. So it is natural for us to pray for relief when we suffer, and that's right. But Paul's prayer shows us that there is another way to pray that can be even deeper than just for our circumstances to change, and it's that we would be spiritually equipped in every circumstance It's a weapon in our fight against suffering and hard circumstances that cannot fail because it's based on the word of truth. It's based on the hope laid up for us in heaven. That's all I have. Um, Let me just close this in prayer, and then you're dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Lord, would you help us to pray spiritual prayers for spiritual people? which is all of us. Lord, help us to be concerned about eternal realities. Help us to be concerned for eternal souls and not only for our um, momentary needs. Help us to remember um, that there is a life to come, that there is a judgment to come, and that we need you eternally. And help us to set our minds on those things. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.